Thanks, John, Archie, Mike, all the rest of you guys. Before we open the word together, I just want to say for those of you who might be joining us uh, as a result of the Thanksgiving holidays upon us, I just want to um, give you a special welcome and I'm glad you're here for whatever reason. And um, because you're kind of coming into something we're already doing, I thought I'd give you a little um, context as to where we've been and, and why we're doing what we're doing now so you can kind of plug in. Um, we just got done going through a, a book called The Prodigal God, and uh, the sermons have been following that that book, and um, it's basically a takeoff of the, or an exposition of the prodigal son story, and um, we concluded that this last week, and um, and these messages last week and this week um, are really kind of a response to that particular story and, and that book, um, answering the question, how, if um, God loves the penitent self-righteous one and God loves the one who has wandered off the reservation and brings him into the same family. How is it that we live as family together? That's kind of the question we're exploring is, is really family life and, and relationships in the body of Christ, relationships between brothers and sisters who are so, so very different. And um, I said this last week, but I'm going to say it again, that um, what we're going to look at this morning in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 2 and 3, are, are not things that any one of the pastors of this church have mastered. Um, we offer these words to you as fellow pilgrims who are endeavoring to um, do the difficult thing of, of loving each other and hanging with each other and learning from each other. I think John and Dan, and as well as myself, would tell you there's been some times when I've had conflict with Dan Overby and, and I've had conflict with John and John, Dan, um, and we hung through it together and we stayed true in our relationship and we've stumbled and got back up and we have learned to forgive. And I can honestly say they're some of my closest brothers and, and, and closest of friends because we, we hung in there. And um, that's, of course, kind of the spirit of where we're headed this morning is, is how, do we, how, do we, uh, how do we live as the body of Christ? And so here's some principles that we resolve by grace to live out in hopes that we will shine forth the glory of Christ. And they're found here in, in Ephesians chapter 4, um, verses three and 2 and 3. So if you have your Bibles, you can take and turn them there. If not, I will have them on the screen um, behind me in a few moments. Let me ask you if you would delight yourself in the Lord in prayer with me as we prepare our hearts. Father, we, we delight in the fact that you are so good. Um, there is no better thought than who you are. There is no more satisfying thing for our desires than who you are, that um, our hearts made alive by the Holy Spirit rejoice and leap to hear your own declaration, the Lord, the Lord, God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love to thousands. And Lord, you have proven that love. You have proven that love with your own blood, uh, bearing our weight, the weight of our sin, um, bearing the wrath of God for us and then giving us your very life. There's, there's just no better heart. There's no better glory. There's no better truth to sink our souls into and just know that you are God and we are loved. And um, we want to live in that light. We want to be convinced, not just uh, in our intellect, but in the deepest recesses of our being. We want to know you and relate to you and stand in the freedom of your grace that you have purchased for us through your own sacrifice. So will you just delight our hearts in who you are and, and as a result also help us to delight in one another because you have purchased each 
um, each one of your people um, with the precious blood of Jesus. And I just pray that you'd help us to be um, one family. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, now that we're headed towards Thanksgiving, I've been reflecting a bit on um, some of the traditions that I've enjoyed over the years. Um, when I think of Thanksgiving, of course, you think of turkey and, and um, uh, cranberry sauce, which really nobody loves, but everybody puts on the table. I suppose a few of you like cranberry sauce and stuffing and, and all the rest of that stuff. And, and another rich memory for me is uh, bad microphones and all that kind of stuff is watching my dad fall asleep in front of a game. He always watched the game and would never manage to stay awake through the thing, so he'd snore in his favorite chair just watching it. I mean, that's kind of Thanksgiving for me, and, and it's a time I look forward to, and I know many of you look forward to Thanksgiving too. It's a time to stop. Nobody goes to work, and you just um, hang together and have conversations and renew your acquaintance with each other. Um, but I'd be willing to guess that if you were to be honest with your feelings, um, there's probably at least one person that you hope won't be there. I'd be honest with your feelings, not with your thoughts. It's just kind of, oh, they're going to be there because maybe they dominate the conversation or maybe they have a little too much to drink and they start to get argumentative, uh, you name it. And um, there's this one person that you kind of wish wasn't, wasn't there, but you know they're going to be there and how are you going to relate to them. Uh, kind of reminds me a little bit of the dinner scene of Christmas Vacation. Um, it's a parody uh, of family during during holidays, but you know, you have the obsessive compulsive Clark Griswold, which you, if you live with him, you couldn't live with him. Uh, you have the crazy Aunt Bethany, you have the, the, um, the cranky Uncle Lewis, uh, let's see what else, you have the probably cynical father-in-law named Art, and of course there is the enormously inappropriate Cousin Eddie um, with his really sweet Winnebago. Um, and uh, all those different personalities um, are ripe for combustion. And if you've ever seen the movie Christmas Vacation, you know it does combust. Um, but that is kind of a parody that really carries, in essence, a, a, a kind of truth, and that is being family is, is oftentimes difficult and, and hard. Um, it's easy when people are happy, but it's hard when things go wrong. And um, that, of course, is, 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 is why we're exploring this, because it's sometimes difficult to, to be family with so many different per personalities. We have all of those personalities in here. Um, of course, I'm not one of them, but we have all those personalities. It's not true. Um, and the, the question is, how do, how, do, how, do we, how do we relate as family in a way that really honors God and sticks together? Um, that's the question. But I also think before we get to the how that Paul answers here in, in Ephesians chapter 4, it's important to just pause and remember why it's important, um, that it is enormously important, um, for one, because Jesus died to make us one. Uh, that is enormously important. So if it cost him his blood, that means it's that important. I think another reason that it's important is because, you know, we change and develop as we strive, as we fall, as we get up in relationship with each other. I mean, if, if love is the pinnacle of God's glory and love, if love is the mark, the primary mark of the Christian follower of Jesus... And love is self-sacrificing by nature and also forgiving in light of an offense, then we don't learn to love if we withdraw from relationships that are difficult. Rather, it's those difficult relationships that are the kiln or the forge in which love is formed, that we learn how to love each other. So um, we change as we live in relationship with each other and as we hang in there. Uh, another important facet which makes relationship really important and family important is, is our mission. 
is um, as we show the world by our um, ability to relate to one another in grace, by both forgiving and also self-sacrificing, we show them that God is real and that, that heaven in one sense has already begun um, because the spirit has been given and now there's a different kind of family that operates on different principles. I love what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 when he said that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know are that one of the biggest evidences or apologetics for the truth of the gospel is how we relate to each other, that it's real. We testify to the realness of grace when people see it in, in a church family. Um, another reason I think it's important is because uh, this family is eternal. Um, like it or not, the people who are going to be entering into the new creation when God renovates the physical universe um, is going to be the people sitting next to you. So you might as well learn how to love them now. Um, because we're going to spend forever with each other. And, um, and then finally, it's a, it, we're family, um, or, or the way in which we relate to one another um, reflects the glory of God's unity. Um, God is three in one. I believe the Trinity, though it's difficult to understand, is one of the most, it is the most glorious thing that I know. Um, that there is a oneness within God, and yet there is a plurality in which God forever existed in community with himself, always in love. And he has included us as his family now to reflect that in the way we relate to each other. So those are all, any one of those is compelling reasons to stick together and to work through relationships uh, as family. Um, But all of them together are, to me, overwhelmingly uh, compelling to, hey, my best interest is at heart in sticking out a relationship because it's going to change me. Um, so with those reasons, uh, kind of laid out there just saying this is why it's important. Um, how is it that we relate? And um, to back up to last week, for those of you who weren't here, um, in the list that Paul gives here, he writes um, that we are to, and this is how we're supposed to live as family, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility. That's the first thing he puts in the list. And gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. As I said last week, this presupposes that being family is going to be difficult sometimes, but it begins with humility, and as discussed last week, really genuine humility from a Christian standpoint comes from an understanding of who we are, um, how we see ourselves, and as I said last week, what creates humility is uh, seeing our lives through two lenses, that we're just supposed to see ourselves in, in the lens of sinner. That is who we were and would be apart from Jesus and apart from grace. That is completely lost. Or as Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15, that I am the foremost of sinners. He saw himself as the foremost of sinners. It's hard to be proud when you have that lens on your own life. But also having the other lens of recognizing that I am also in Christ. And in Christ, I am fully forgiven. I am fully justified. I am full-fledged family member. Um, I am a full-fledged son or daughter of Christ or of, of, of God through Christ. And um, that we're to see ourselves, as I put it, um, as in Christ, no more, no less. That I am what I am in Christ, no more, no less. Uh, any failures that I make uh, don't detract or take away from who I am as a child of God. And any successes that I, that I have don't add anything to my life. So if my value is simply and exclusively on the fact that I'm in Christ and there's no reason to boast. My boast will be in Christ, not in my accomplishments, and I won't be afraid of my failures. And out of that comes a genuine sense of humility. Now, what I want to say in terms of the order of this is that you can't go on to the next two, which we're looking at, of of gentleness uh, or 
um, patience without humility. Um, that it's only as we walk humbly, knowing um, that we are sinners saved by grace alone, will we ever be able to really treat one another with gentleness and with patience. There's a statement that, um, that Keller writes in his book that really kind of unlocks that or, or res- resonates with that, where he says that the inevitable sign that you know you are a sinner saved by sheer costly grace is a sensitive social conscience and a life poured out in deeds of service to the poor. That is, if I, if I read him right, what he's saying is that when a person really gets, not in a cliche way, but gets that I'm a sinner saved by the sheer costly grace of the blood of Christ, then it awakens in us a, a, a sensitivity to the needs of other people. Um, and it's only when we know that that we really are able to then uh, be sensitive to um, their hurts, their pains, and, and their needs. And that really, I think, is a pretty good um, description of what gentleness is, is, uh, is a sensitivity. A sensitivity to people's hurts, their hearts, their uniqueness, um, maybe their past, uh, their backgrounds, their pains, their failures. Um, that that is, that is a, a, a form of gentleness, is a, is a sensitivity. Um, but as I thought about that, it, it seems to me that gentleness is oftentimes in short supply uh, f- for a number of, of reasons. Um, one is that we are so busy in life that we seldom have the time to really get to know another person, to know where they come from, what their personality type is. And so it's difficult to deal gently with a person if we're so busy we don't know them. Um, I think another, perhaps a more important reason that we're oftentimes insensitive to people is because we're often um, blinded by our own a sense of, of pride, um, which shows itself in varied ways. Um, one can be the, the self-centeredness of being preoccupied with our own problems. That is, we're, we're so consumed with our own failures that we can't manage to look or be sensitive to the failures or the hurts or the struggles of other people. And it, we can't care then if all we care about is ourselves. That's a, that's a form of self-centeredness. Uh, another form of self-centeredness which keeps us from being gentle is, is the kind of armchair quarterback approach to relationships. You know what that is? It's when a when I think of armchair quarterback, I think of a guy who's, who's balding, who's middle-aged, who's a little bit overweight, sitting on a recliner with a Bud Light in his hand, looking at the TV, watching the play and being angry, thinking, well, if I was the coach, I would do this, or if I was the quarterback, I would do this, as if he has a better idea some, you know, hundred or thousand miles away behind a TV set. But we oftentimes do have that approach in our relationships that, well, if you'd only do this in the raising of your kids, then everything would go Okay armchair quarterback. Um, Or if only you would do this in your marriage, which you're not doing right, well, then your marriage would do better. And we kind of sit from a distance and kind of pick people apart because we have an elevated sense of our own superior judgment. Um, And that is another form of self-centeredness. And and, and if that's our approach, we are almost always going to come at somebody harsh and pointed and careless, and it's going to hurt. and oftentimes, out of that sense of superior judgment, like I, I know better than other people, no, no, we would never articulate it that way, but that's what we think, um, comes kind of a personal agenda to push in a particular direction because we know better. And all of those forms of self-centeredness keep us from being sent, uh, sensitive, careful, and thoughtful in our relationships to each other. And the reason I know this is because I've failed in all of those ways. And I think many of you have too. 
Um, one of my closest friends, and still one of my closest friends to this day, um, suffered a deeply painful and tragic injustice. I can't tell you what it is. But something that you really don't want to talk about. Close friend going through something very painful. Not something he did, but something done to him. And it created a lot of anger, wrestling with issues of forgiveness. And this is a mature believer. And I watched him go through days and then weeks and then months of dealing with the anger caused by this injustice and uh, struggling with the whole concept of forgiveness. And at one point, again, armchair quarterback, I thought to myself, well, you know, what he really needs to do is he needs to get over it. And so I presumed that that was the answer, and and I I think that's something along the lines of what I said, is that you really got to move on, forgive and get over it. And... I know what happened. That was just like a a hammer from a close friend right into his heart. Um, Maybe a knife would be a better metaphor. Um, And I've had to go back and ask forgiveness for that because, you know what, he needed from me in that moment if I was sensitive and if 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 I didn't think I knew everything, is he just needed me to be his brother and stand by him. He needed me to pray for him and just to be there and listen. But presupposing that I knew better, stuck my foot in my mouth, and I hurt him because I had an elevated sense of my own superior judgment. And that's what I mean. It's oftentimes it's our own self-centeredness, whether it's, our, uh, man, I'm struggling with my problems, so you can't, you can't look outside if you're always looking inside. Um, or you think you know better, and you end up saying things that hurt people because you really don't know better. Um, and then you have this private agenda that you end up pushing, and it, and it hurts people. I, I think that oftentimes gets in the way of this, this thing called gentleness. And um, like it or not, I think everybody in here has a fragile soul. Now, I know some of you men think, well, no, I'm, I have um, thick skin. I am impervious to these fences. And you know what? I have never met someone who had thick skin everywhere. You might have thin, thick skin here, but thin skin here. You just got to know where to poke, you know? Because there's thin skin in everybody. I've seen it. So our souls are fragile. And to recognize that in each other, that we are fragile people. And a word can maim. A word can defeat. A word can destroy. And we'd never take that approach um, toward people if we saw them as like infants. You know, when someone hands you an infant, how do you treat it? This precious little life. Well, you don't grab it like a two-by-four. Here you go. I carefully someone hands you their infant and you take it and you support its neck and you cradle it and you look at it and you wonder over it and um and the fact of the matter is that you are children of the lord you're his infants your souls and so am i and just to recognize that we are fragile and need to be treated with gentleness because we're not as strong or thick-skinned as we think we are And we can hurt each other by failing to simply be gentle. Now, is there a place for a strong rebuke or a a stern confrontation? Absolutely. Paul did it. Jesus did it. But I don't think it's ever, in the strategy of dealing with relationships, the first or second approach. It's like more of a last resort. Now, that doesn't mean that you hint at truth or kind of skirt around issues. I prefer straight talk, but be gentle. And I think you do as well. 
just being sensitive to who people are, their past, who they, uh, their personality types, and just recognizing this is an infant of the Lord, I am an infant of the Lord, and we need to treat each other with, with gentleness. So that's part of what it means to be uh, in the family. Um, and part of what promotes and preserves the sense of family is just recognizing that we need to treat each other with gentleness. But where there is a sense of self-centeredness or an elevated self, you know, we're going to tend to be sharp, hurtful, unthoughtful, um, like a bull in a china closet, and our relationships are really going to suffer as a result. So Paul's first and second instruction after humility is to be gentle with each other. Be gentle with me, I with you, and you with each other. And it will promote and preserve the sense of family. And he goes on to a, to a second thing here, um, which is um, patience. It's a word that nobody likes, um, but everybody wants. I want your patience, but it's hard for me to be patient. Right after this, he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, um, bearing with one another in love. And the word patience actually means long-tempered. You know that? Long-tempered as opposed to short-tempered, which means that a a person who has patience or is long-tempered is somebody who can deal with a lot of flaws, imperfections, and, and petty hurts and offenses without growing frustrated, angry, and withdrawing from relationship. In effect... The loss of patience is giving in to anger and withdrawing from people. Uh, that's, that's what it is. And actually, the next statement there, it kind of uh, elaborates on what patience is, which is why I kind of diagrammed it out this way, is that um, when he says bearing with one another in love, he's not talking about something other than patience. He's just filling out what it means, that when we're patient with people, we, we bear up with their issues and their flaws and their, their quirks and their... Um, mistakes and they're bumbling around and they're, they're, they're falling on their faces and uh, mistakes in words that they make, mistakes in being gentle, is that we bear with one another, but not just bear up. Because um, I said, oh, so sick and tired of John. It just drains me every time that he comes into my office. That's not what he's talking about. He says, bearing with one another because that's what love does, in love. The self-sacrificing, forgiving nature of love. That's, that's, that's why we do it, because it's an aspect of genuine love, and it's how God and Christ loves us. Now, let me make one point of clarification here, because people can easily abuse the understanding of patience um, to be kind of a passive, passive thing or to let people walk on you. I'm so patient that people just mow right over me. Or in enabling people to continue sin that we have... Um, authority over. I can see a mother or father who have an adult child, 21-year-old son, um, who, who is so lazy, he doesn't get a job, he just kind of sleeps in until 10 or 11 every day, doesn't help around the house. And if mom and dad, under the label of patience, continue to do everything for him, that's not patience, that's enabling sin. Um, love always has to be guided by wisdom, God's word, and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Um, and always seeks the better of the person you're trying to deal with. So those are kind of um, uh, negative or uh, mistaken applications of what patience is. But patience does, does refuse to give in to anger to the point where you withdraw from that person. And on the positive side, patience basically says, listen, I'm not going anywhere. I'm sticking with it. I'm going to continue to love you as best as I can by the grace of God as Jesus loved me first. Despite all my imperfections and my sins and 
And he continues to hold on to me and be with me. And he has promised never to leave me or forsake me. He has borne all of my sorrows. And just as he has loved me that way, so I, by grace, am going to commit myself to trying to love you that way. That's patience. Patience at work. Um, And something that we oftentimes struggle with. This this might be interesting for you to know, maybe not. But um, in the times, years that I have uh, experienced church in a, a different different venues, including this one, um, most of the time, what make people impatient and angry and withdraw from church or relationships aren't substantive things, like unrepentant sin or false doctrine. The things that tend to make people impatient and angry and withdraw from community are often issues of opinion, preference, methods, how you raise your kids, how you don't raise your kids, what educational program, public, private, or um, homeschool, um, are things like, well, he didn't give me a hug today. Or the church did not overtly and obviously support the war. Or um, the pastoral staff refused to pray for the royal family when Princess Di had her tragic accident. Now, all of those things I named are real. And they are not substantive. They are peripheral. Yet that's oftentimes what people grow impatient over, angry and withdraw from community. We have to be able, in the body of Christ, be able to separate out what is substantive versus peripheral. And the peripheral things we really shouldn't get that upset about. Now, even the substantive things, you know, real sins, adultery, Gossip, lying, whatever you want to put in there. Even then, we're still called to bear up and to be patient. Now, the process, of course, is going to be much longer, much more painful. Deal with the emotional realities of it. And reconciliation at its uh, truest level may take years. But we're still called, as Christ bears up with our continued sin, substantive issue, to try to bear up with one another and and seek the grace of God to continue on in in relationship with each other. Now, that's easier said than done, as you know, especially when you're the person who gets hurt. But on the flip side, how is it that we can actually grow in our sense of patience? Well, the obvious one that I've already referenced is, you know, having that attitude of humility that knows that I'm a sinner saved by grace alone and walking in that attitude that considers others, even their sin is, in their sin is is better than myself. That's part of it. I think another big part of it is that we have to trust each other to the Lord. That wherever you're at, you know, I have to trust that he who began a good work in you is going to complete it. That means in his time and his way. And if I try and force it, then that's me getting in the way. Not only is it arrogant, but I think it is destructive. But to trust, hey, Lord, you have my husband. I I don't need to pressure him to be something that he's not yet. Or I don't need to pressure my wife to be something she's not yet. Or my children, I don't have to pressure them to be something that they're not yet. Or the pastor, I don't have to pressure him to be something that he's not yet. And when we're able to trust each other to the Lord, it releases that sense of control that turns to anger that turns to withdrawal. Um, so that's one way. It's trust, trust the Lord with each other. 
I have to trust him with you, not grow angry if I think things don't go my way. Um, I think an, another thing that helps us with patience with each other is, is um, focusing, and this is hard to do, focusing on the redeeming qualities of an individual rather than their negatives. We're, we are instantly prone to go to the squeaky wheel, which is usually pain. So if there's somebody who's a little bit domineering um, and that hurts sometimes, then it's easy because it hurts to focus on that. Man, this person is just, ouch, (coughs) not a good person. Never mind the fact that they may be amazingly generous and giving. To do the opposite of recognizing, hey, there are signs of grace in this person's life. They are generous. They're giving. Look at the beauty of how God's made and how they, he's working in their life. And to focus more on the positive aspects of what God's grace is doing in a person's life rather than the negative. That helps to be a patient with a person. Um, people have taught me that lesson, and it has helped. It's not 100% all the time, but it helps. I think one other thing that, that helps, and this is really an analogy, <coughs> excuse me, that I hope will give you a sense of how a mental framework of of relationship. Um, Most of you, I was going to use a sports illustration, but uh, John and Archie would cringe because I'm not a sports guy and I'd get it wrong. All you sports guys would think, oh, come on, Dan. But I do know music. Um, And most of you know enough to know the difference between classical music and jazz music. Classical music is a highly controlled form of music. You put a sheet music in front of you, and it's all highly scripted. You play all the notes on the page. Um, and your level of success in playing classical music is largely determined with little variance on playing all the notes. Now, if we take a classical music approach to our relationships, that means all of us are expected, and we expect each other to play all of the notes in exactly the same way. It's a kind of straitjacket approach to church, relationships, family, marriage, you name it. And, and, and one of two things, actually both things tend to happen if that's our approach to church, relationships, marriage, and family. The classical music approach. By the way, I like classical music. This is an analogy. We will be highly irritated at each other because we don't all play the right notes. And in that particular approach, there is no freedom. No innovation, no ability to improvise or to be the unique person with the unique personality that God has created you to be. People are impatient with that kind of a framework. We'll grow impatient with each other. But jazz is different. Jazz still has a structure, but it's loose. You have a basic chord progression, you know, C, G, A, F, uh, where you can add little things like seconds, fourths, sevenths, and ninths, and a common rhythm. Common chord progression, common rhythm. But aside from that, it's loose. You kind of get to play within that structure what you want to improvise, create, be yourself. And it seems to me the way God has designed the church and designed family and personalities is he's designed us to live in more of a jazz-like approach relationship. We do have some commonalities that keep us centered. We have one Jesus who bought us. We have one spirit who is working out his work in our lives. We have one moral guide by which we're to live in scripture. 
We share the common grace of God that made us what we are. Outside of that, we need to be ourselves and let others be themselves. And to recognize that within like a jazz structure, sometimes there's dissonance and tension. And it may feel funny at the moment, but it has a purpose. And it can actually can add color and beauty. And to let each other play the notes within the chord structure and within the rhythm that God has given to us. And not just feel irritation because that's a different note than I would play, but to turn it around and recognize, you know what? I actually have come to appreciate the notes that come out of your life. Your unique personality to this church family, if you were gone, something would be missing. I mean, it's the differences that create a sense of texture and wonder and art. And, and, and every personality in this church family is part of that, part of the texture, part of the art, part of the distinctiveness. When Jesus um, bought us and what he's planning on doing and forming us, he did not want to create a whole bunch of clones. A whole church of John Berry's or Dan Deckard's or Dan Overby's would be really boring. He didn't make us that way. You look at the final vision in the Bible of the New, uh, new Jerusalem, which is a, a metaphor for the bride of Christ. She is decorated with all kinds of variations of beautiful and glory-radiating jewels. That typifies the bride. We're supposed to be different. And to have the freedom to do that and not just great at the fact that there's differences, but begin to enjoy it. Because I believe that's, that's kind of a framework for, for understanding how we're to relate to each other and see each other. Is that, you know what, wow, I actually enjoy your differences um, rather than having them, them great on me um, and creating impatience. So in Paul's two words here, if we're to promote and preserve a sense of family, you know, armed with humility, uh, rooted in the fact that we're saved by grace, sinners saved by grace alone, um, to, to learn to treat each other as infants and, and gentle, but also recognizing that we need to be patient because we're going to mess up along the way. And in the things that are wrong, we need to get up and we need to repent of it and, and seek reconciliation and so forth. But in the differences that aren't substantive, just let the notes go and be who you are and let others be who they are. And, and we'll find that we have far less impatience and we'll actually enjoy the differences rather than letting them turn us against each other. And um, again, the whole purpose of this, why? Because you will change if you stick with it for those reasons and with that attitude, and with these approaches. You will change. And more importantly, God will be honored in the fact that though we are imperfect, we just keep at it. And knowing that the world is looking at God's family to see if there really is something that works. And I believe grace works. And if you believe grace works, then stick with it in humility gentleness and in patience, endeavoring to be what God has already called us to be and what he will one day bring to perfection when he raises us from the dead. So I, I hope that w whatever your relationship dynamic is, wife, family, or somebody or people in this church, if you find yourself impatient or lacking uh, uh, gentleness, rethink family. Rethink how you're approaching these things, and perhaps some of the things said this morning will help you to be the brother or sister um, that you need to be to that other person. I, uh, Archie already did this in the service, and, and um, 
and he took it away from me, um, but he had you put your hands on one another's shoulders, and so I'm going to be redundant and have you do it again, because we didn't talk. If you wouldn't mind, just if you're with somebody, if you're not, you don't need to get out of your chair. Just as a symbol, as a sign of our connectedness. Actually, you know what? I'm going to break it up here. Why don't you stand up? I just had a not-too-brilliant idea. Um, I'm going to do what they did last week. If you would just grab the hand of the person next to you, and if you could close between the aisles, um, just go ahead and connect. Don't be afraid. Go towards the center. And uh, uh, just as a sign of the fact that we are, in the words of Paul, we are one household. We are one man in place of the two. We are one body. We are one, have one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. Lord, I pray that you would um, bring down the assaults of the evil one that would seek to destroy what you have created, um, namely a people, a family. And um, may your grace and your love prevail in our relationships with each other in forgiveness, in self-sacrifice, honesty, humility, in gentleness, in patience, that you would enable us by the grace of Jesus who bore everything for us to just live with each other and continue to fight the good fight of love. And um, I just thank you for this church family, and I pray that you would continue to work in our relationships, forming us into the people you would have us be. In the name of Jesus, our King, our Savior, and our reigning Redeemer, in Jesus' name I pray, amen.